Hello and welcome to this podcast version of Downstream on Sea, an extra special interview between myself, Ash Sarka, and Zara Sultana, the firebrand left-wing MP for Coventry South. So we were on the beach in Brighton eating fish and chips and talking about the World Transformed and Labour Party Conference. So the World Transformed is like the cool, rad, actually political bit of the Labour movement and Labour Party Conference is where you go if you want to feel like you're dying, but actually you are still trapped within the mortal coil itself. So I was talking to Zara Sultana about the internal politicking in Labour, the factionalism, but also about the issues really close to her heart. Why did she get into politics? How was she able to withstand the more boring bits of the Labour Party in order to retain the hope of achieving social change? And should transphobic MPs, even her colleagues, lose the whip for bigotry? So the audio is a bit windswept. You will hear some aggressive seagulls in the background, but I hope you enjoy. First question. Yes. The Labour Party is very depressing. Why are you in it? I think it's really important when we think of like the biggest crises we face at the moment, like the climate crisis, and we need state power and the path to that in my opinion, and what I say whenever people say, you know, it's incredibly difficult to be a party member seeing everything that's going on. It's like, what other alternative do we have when we need to re-nationalize public industries, when we need to, you know, take on the fossil fuel industry and to do it at the, the speed and the scale that we need to, we need to be in government. So that's like the best advertisement <laughs> I can come up with. But it's like, that's why people need to stay within the party, but also organize. A lot of the ground that we've made over the past few years, like that stuff is still being debated. And like, you know, people are trying to backtrack on that. So those arguments and those fights and those campaigns are just as important. So can you talk to me a bit about your journey into politics? Did you always think that the Labour Party was the right vehicle for social transformation or was there something that happened that made you think that way? I joined the party when I was 17 under Ed Miliband and it was just like a membership that I had because I wasn't able to get involved locally. My family were all Labour Party members but we had a CLP that was under special measures in a very racialized way that that was done through the party and then when I went to university just after tuition fees got tripled, I was very angered by what I saw was an assault on our generation of young people by politicians who went to university for free, had grants, were able to get really good jobs afterwards, own a house, get a pension, live a good life. And I was experiencing what I thought was a betrayal of young people by politicians. So I got angry, I'm still very angry. <laughs> that hasn't changed. But when I went to university, it was a space where I was able to get organized with the Palestine Society, with the Black and Ethnic Minority Association, with the free education movement. And a lot of my political education happened through NUS. And we're in Brighton, where I've lived through so many NUS conferences. A bit triggering, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> uh, but it was a space where I was able to develop skills, organize campaigns, run workshops, really build amazing networks, especially of young people of color across the country, organizing on prevent, the black attainment gap, mental health, everything. And then we were all, you know, on the left, organizing, going to demos, doing things around deaths in police custody, organizing a Black Lives Matter solidarity tour, really exciting stuff. But the Labour Party wasn't a space that we could engage with because it had just been like, you know, there was no way in. It was like a clique um, and 
then Jeremy Corbyn miraculously, even to his surprise, becomes party leader. Popped out the ground like yeast. And we were like, what? Did that just happen? Pinch me. <laughs> and then we were like, okay, maybe this is like an opportunity now to get involved with the Labour Party. We're all Labour Party members generally. We're all on the left. We've seen Jeremy and John at picket lines for students and all sorts. So it was like, okay, let's see if this is a space we can organise in. And then ran for Young Labour National Executive. And that's where it all kind of began. But the journey was kind of through the student movement, really. Are there people within the party now that you think, I don't share your politics, but I can work with you on certain issues? Absolutely. I think, you know, the Labour Party is described as a broad charge. But when we look at policies around civil liberties, when we look at the le legislation the government's brought forward around spy cops, um, you know, the overseas operations bill, all of these things, there are coalitions to be built around civil liberties, around the environment. And there's, you know, there, there are friends within the party that you can work with. On I those mean, things. that's true, but Starmer whipped to abstain on those bills. He did until there was pressure, especially uh, with uh, the police crime sentence in a courts bill, which was from the movement. So I was always going to uh, vote against it, but we saw what happened with the Sarah, Sarah Everard disappearance and murder, how women took to the streets. They were like, we're not going to allow you to tell us that we can't protest and we can't collectively grieve. And it was that uh, public outrage and organising led by Sisters Uncut um, and led by women that forced the party to take that U-turn. And I think that was like a really important lesson to understand the importance of movement in holding the party accountable and how it can force really shit policy decisions being overturned. Some of our viewers may not have noticed this, but we're both brown. And actually, we get confused for each other. So Nick, Timothy, my name is Zara. This is Ash. So I'm Zara and this is Ash when HMRC come calling. Um, but I just wanted to talk a bit about your experience of being a Muslim woman of colour who is on the left because it feels sometimes that you can be one of these things at a time and then when you're all of them, you just get this wave of like both murderous rage and confused horniness just in your mentions all the time. And I just wanted to ask a bit about one, what's your experience of that like? And two, how do you cope with it? Especially the kind of barrage of hate, which um, I've spoken about in the chamber as well. I think, you know, as a prominent British Muslim in the public eye, you kind of expect a degree of it. But then I think when it comes for you, you just don't realise the overwhelming scale of it. And it just seems, yeah, very overwhelming. And I think when I first, you know, got elected, um, I had seen the experiences of Diane Abbott, so I was like, you know, I'm, I'm probably going to get not the like nicest experience in general. You didn't general. go in naively. No, absolutely not. But then when I spoke up on certain things that I was not going to stay silent on, you know, when Black Lives Matter were being demonised as a movement, when you've got, you know, anti-migrant rhetoric, when you've got, um, you know, all of these horrible anti-civil liberties legislations and like speaking up for migrants' rights and all sorts, it's like, that's when they really come for you because I think we can be palatable as long as we stay in our lane, right? Like, we're okay for diversity and we're okay to make like a picture look diverse and cool <laughs> and like reflective of a modern Britain. But the second we're challenging the status quo, the second we're saying actually the rhetoric by the government as well as, you know, positions our party's taken, then it's like you're overstepping your mark. Like, 
don't go there. And, and it's like, well, these are policies that actively harm our communities. These are policies when I talk about prevent and I talk about the war on terror. It's not fun. These are, these are things that have harmed our communities. When I talk about austerity, we know people who are dependent on food banks. People have died because of austerity um, and like NHS waiting lists and what this government has done over the past 11 years. It's not, some, it's, not it, it's deeply personal. So we have to speak about these things. And I think for some people it's like, I'm happy with you being there, but like, maybe just be quiet and just sit there and no. I mean, how much of your politics is drawn from your experience? Because for me, so much of my political education came from the fact that the war on terror was going on and my mom was like, hey, we're Muslim. This is going to affect us in all these ways. Yeah. Um, obviously being subject to racism really impacted how my mom raised me and what kind of yeah. values she raised me with and, and the material she exposed me to. So in terms of that personal story, what are those issues, those personal moments of connection. With I grew up in inner city Birmingham and I went to uh, a comprehensive that was seen as a, a trouble, a trouble school. I remember one of the teachers joined and she said, oh, um, you know, in moving to this school, I was told I should take a bulletproof vest. Um, and that was just kind of like a jokey remark, but it was like, this is what you're telling a student like of what others think of our school. But it wasn't just like that kind of anecdote of a conversation. We had a police officer, a senior police officer from the West Midlands Police who had never visited my school, went to the city council and said, every kid in that school will be able to tell you which gang they're gonna end up in. And that's how we were seen because of our postcode, because of our racial background. Um, and that was kind of this uh, journey that we were expected to take. And my school was brilliant. You know, I did lots of extracurricular activities. I was that nerdy kid that was doing an accountancy course on the weekend. <laughs> I was doing an extra. An accountancy yeah. course? Yeah, an AAT MVQ level course on Saturdays. Are your parents disappointed that you're not an accountant? My dad's an accountant. So I was like, maybe I'm going to become an accountant. But then I was, you know, my school offered opportunities like doing classical civilizations, which is seen like, you know, as a posh GCSE, but we were doing it in year nine on Monday mornings. And I was, we were able to visit Bath and, you know, they took us to the theatre because, you know, things are set that you get this messaging that like, certain forms of art aren't for working class people and like my school really tried to like show that that wasn't the case so all of these experiences you know the way we were seen by uh, you know the police how my school was seen because it was an inner city comp and then i went to a grammar six form mm. and i was never aware of my class position before that and i was like oh my god where am i and it really, really opened my eyes. So then when I went to the University of Birmingham, it was just like another scale on this ladder of like sheer elitism and like experiencing people who were saying things that I had never heard of, things that I was just like, wait, there's, there are people who don't like the fact that the NHS is free for all, like funded by taxation. Like that is, that is not a view that's held by everyone. I will never forget, because I went to UCL and it was a similar story. I went from a comprehensive secondary school, uh, grammar six form, and then went to UCL. And for the first time I was interacting with people who were like privately educated. And I remember asking this girl, I was like, oh my God, what's the rent on your place? Like she was living like in Clerkenwell or something, it's like bougie, bougie flat. And I was like, what's the rent on this place? You must be paying through the nose. And she was like, I'm not renting. And I was like, oh, Jesus Christ. Like we come from different yeah. universes almost. Absolutely. And then it just really, you know, you, you're kind of like, am I even meant to be here? And you're constantly fighting this like imposter syndrome. And I definitely experienced that at university because I was like, wait, I'm like, am I even good enough? And I was really involved with all of this activism. And I was also looking at my degree, thinking that I'm failing it. And if I fail my degree, 
then am I like, I'm a failure to society because I'm not gonna be able to get a job and that's it, like my life is over. So I had a proper mental health crisis while at university. I took a year out, it was the best decision I ever made. And I was just focused on me and I did a bit of traveling, worked a bit, and then came back to university thinking, let me just graduate and then I can figure everything out. And, you know, then once I graduated, working in retail and, you know, working in Primark gives you life skills. <laughs> working in H&M then, it was like, obviously, like slightly nicer than Primark, where I was like, I've seen things, I've heard things, but I can do anything now. <laughs> You're like, once you have dealt with H&M in sales season. You can take on anything. Boris Johnson, who are you? Like, in comparison. But I mean, that feeling of imposter syndrome, do you find that it comes back yeah. through being in the comments, which Absolutely. is obviously this elite yeah. environment. Yeah. And I've noticed people target you and try and make you feel in particular that you're young, you're stupid, you don't you know anything. You have no life experience because I've not worked in a, a bank or I haven't been a hedge fund manager or I'm not a millionaire. Like, I did an accountancy or, course. Exactly, like I know how to do a spreadsheet. Like I know invoices <laughs> and all of that stuff. Like don't test me on that. But um, so, so the comments for from my experience i'm like looking across the chamber and i see intergenerational wealth i see privilege i see landlords i see millionaires i see people who are fighting for their class there's like immense class solidarity on those benches Amongst the rich. of course <laughs> and i when i first sat there i i was next to hillary ben the first time i sat on those green benches and i just pinched myself because i had to process that i was here now this is not you know, watching it on TV. This is, I'm here, I'm just like the rest of you. I was elected by my constituents and I have a job to do, which is to serve their interests. And that's what I was gonna do. And I was like, this is work now, I'm here to work. And I'm, and there are times when I'm speaking and they will heckle me and they will jeer. And now it's like, actually when it doesn't happen, I'm surprised. So when we were doing it virtually, I was like, oh my God, no one's heckling me. This is weird. Cause I'm kind of used to it. But it gives me um, a, a certain kind of adrenaline rush because I'm like, one, they're listening and they're paying attention and they hate it. Great messages being received, but the, the audience I'm talking to are in Coventry South. It's young people. It's people from a working class background who I'm trying to be kind of like, present their voice in a way because they if they could they would all love to be in the chamber but i'm here now and i've been offered this platform so i need to do it justice i mean let me talk to you a bit about young people because one of the things about jeremy corbyn's leadership it felt like he took the material interests of young people seriously so housing tenants rights debt wages all of that kind of stuff and now I'm afraid with your new boss, yeah. it feels like all he's interested in is reassuring retired homeowners that he's not a wrong'un. So do you honestly think that the Labour Party is representing the voice of young people and their interests? Absolutely not. And it's a real shame because so many young people were galvanised by Jeremy Corbyn's leadership. So many of us came into the party with like a renewed sense of hope. It felt like, you know, this was home. We all kind of came together from different geographies, different backgrounds. And we all had this vision of changing society for the better. And now I met with young people who feel despair and despondency. And what I would say to that is, I remember John McDonnell saying in 2015, for the left, it was one of the lowest moments that they felt. And then soon after the general election, Jeremy became leader and it all changed. And they had been in this political wilderness for much longer and carried on fighting and kept going and kept going. And while we've spent you know, the last few years within the leadership of the Labour Party, and it's felt exciting 
I think we then forget how far we've come and how many people have carried on and stayed fighting. And there can be that opportunity again. And there will be, we have to believe in that. And we have to organize for that. So when people leave the party, I get it. I get it. It's like not the, the best advertisement to come and, and join. But I would say is that we need to have young people because the right do not have ideas. They don't have ideas for the housing crisis. They're very happy to visit, you know. They have ideas, it's make it worse. <laughs> exactly, they're very happy to prioritize meeting landlord associations rather than renters and tenants unions. When it comes to the crisis of mental health, when we think about the climate crisis, all of these things, as socialists, we have the ideas, we've made the arguments, they're popular in the country, and that's how you know we're gonna change society for the better and address all of these crises. crises. The right rig the rules because they know if they tell the truth and they say exactly what they think and who they are, they're not gonna get elected. And that's why they're willing to you know, um, uh, decrease party democracy for members. They're willing to say, you know, this is what I believe in. And then like have like absolutely like walk the complete opposite direction when it comes to implementing any of that. And I think that, that, that should give us hope that we have the ideas, we have the, 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 the organizations, we have momentum, we have Navarre, we have like this whole ecology of amazing organizations that have sprung up and are becoming, you know, a real pillar of the, the pillars of the left. You know, everyone will associate those organizations with being um, something that has come through this like turbulent time and hopefully are here to stay for, for the future. But these are things that we should be proud of and build on. And I think kind of just forgetting those wins, you, we can, it's very easy to forget those wins, but we've achieved a lot. And I think we can, we can do so much more. What so. music are you listening to at the moment? Because what I've always liked about you is that you are plugged into pop culture and you also talk like my friends talk. I'm like, oh, she's actually a normal human being. So music, what are so, you listening to? At the moment, I'm really excited. This is the embarrassing stuff and I'll get on to some of the cooler stuff, but like Coldplay have just released oh my God. a song with BTS called My Universe and it's all I'm putting on repeat and it's really good. Please listen to it. They're not giving me any money for this. I'm just a big fan. What you um, just heard was your majority being sliced in. You know what? Oh, I other people who are like, <laughs> love your politics, hate your music taste. And I'm happy with that. Like, I can't, I can't, I can't be like great in all areas. Like there has to be something. Dave's new album is amazing. Um, I'm, I've been listening to that quite a lot. And you know, he, it, that stuff touches on like politics and like a political reality for a lot of people. Um, so that, and then I've just kind of been quite nostalgic. I love stuff that I grew up listening to in the nineties and the early mm -hmm. thousands. You know, there's never like a, a wrong time to listen to like some Spice Girls. <laughs> You know, all of that stuff. I'm, I'm I thought at least you were going to say like Eternal, TLC, TLC, Tony Braxton. Give me a mic. Like, Tony Braxton, Mariah Carey. Okay, like, thank you, thank yeah. you. I'm, just, I'm trying to rescue Honestly, your karaoke, credibility here, Karaoke night, like you can't get a mic off me. Mm. I can do all sorts of stuff. What's your karaoke song? Oh, okay. I have to start off with Backstreet Boys, I Want You That Way. And oh then like, I will move. But also like Bollywood stuff, I kind of like touch okay, a bit of everything. Okay. A bit of Gwali music as well from the subcontinent. It's kind of like, I can't just, I'm, yeah, it's, it's a mess. It's chaos. It's, it's me. My music taste is like everything. <laughs> it's, if it's got a vibe, I'm with it. You're there. Yeah. Uh, you know what I've always wanted to do? I've always wanted to do on a karaoke night. I want someone to be Santan Dave so I can be AJ Tracy. Oh. And I'm, I'm waiting to meet 
my Santan Dave. Am I your Santan Dave? I don't know. Let me hear a few bars. No, Maybe when we're not rolling. Maybe we're not because this is going to be deeply embarrassing. <laughs> and, um, but also the other the kind of music that I want to also give a shout out to is some of the new stuff that's coming out from like artists like Joey Crooks, Rina Sawayama, Parsalia, all of these guys who are coming from like talking about their working like class experiences, making amazing music. You know, there's pop, there's like also like indie vibes with like Joy's new album. And they're like amazing artists new in their careers that we should support. Um, and they've all got albums and concerts and everything. Are you angling for that shadow culture brief? <laughs> Promote me, BB. We've heard a lot, particularly in the run up to this conference, about how people who are hostile or skeptical about the idea of trans rights don't feel like their views are welcome. What we don't hear about and who doesn't get to go on yeah. Radio 4 are the vast numbers of transgender people who've left the party because they feel that fundamentally transphobia is being given the green light. What would you say to those people? I have friends who have left the party or are incredibly close to leaving the party because of a catalogue of incidents that make them uh, feel like they're not safe or they're not welcome within the party and I think it's deeply deeply concerning and something that should shame us all and we should call it out and condemn it when you have stats like two in five trans people um, have faced a hate crime um, and the, the numbers of people who are experiencing mental health problems are experiencing real problems accessing housing and all sorts that should like concern us right as as socialists who want to unite all working people all marginalized communities to liberate ourselves and the labor party should be at the forefront of fighting for all marginalized communities to present a vision of liberation our, co our collective liberation and i think it's incredibly um, sad to see the state of where the party is now um, and I think you know there is a platform like you mentioned where if you want to uh, spread a message that is harmful to trans the trans community you can get columns you can get radio interviews you can get a platform and then say oh actually I'm being cancelled like the irony of that is is astounding and there are all of these thousands of members who aren't being heard and I think the party really needs to fix up because it's unacceptable and you know this isn't a fringe issue. This is fundamentally about human rights. Trans rights are human rights. Trans women are women. Trans men are men. Like this is not. Well, how are we debating this in the party that is talking about eradicating everyone's oppression? And I think you know the leadership has so much more to do. To um, you know, it's easy to talk about it, but when we look at actions, it's incredibly depressing. But some of the stuff, like not to put too fine a point on it, is coming from your colleagues, people who are MPs, and they do have not only a huge platform because they're MPs, but they also get an outsized hearing in the press. So when are we going to see transphobia being taken seriously? And would it take something like the whip being removed from people who articulate a point of view which is hostile not just to trans people but also saying that we should roll back on protections which they've legally had enshrined in the Equalities Act. We've seen the leadership use uh, removing the whip in other incidents so you know that they're they're willing to do it when it comes to certain things but when it comes to um, you know uh, reprimanding members of staff while well, you, you know this is something that all party like uh, MPs are told to be very careful about talking about I think it's really important to have faith in the party taking um, serious action. What is our disciplinary process? Do any of us have faith in, in that? Why aren't MPs being at least investigated? Like are the concerns and the grievances and the complaints being put in being investigated? And I think I don't have faith in that system at all at the moment, especially when we see the attacks are also happening on 
left members. And I think it's all something that's incredibly concerning and the leadership should always be held to account. And I know that there were young members at party conference who asked Keir, um, what is he doing to reassure trans members that they are safe within the party? And the answer was not good. He completely didn't answer the question. And I think those are all things that we need to be, as MPs, holding the party to account if we're going to go to PLP meetings, as difficult as they are, uh, but also wider than that. So I've got one last question for you. You can introduce one policy tomorrow yes. and it will be implemented. That's so hard. What is it? Because when I think of all the things that we need to do, from increasing the national minimum wage... No, 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 oh, Jean, don't rattle them off, don't rattle them off. I can't. One, one. one policy. I can't just do one. Okay, if I if I had to do one and it was taking as many people out of poverty as I could, it would be increasing the national minimum wage as like the instant immediate thing to do that will make immediate material like results. It will have that consequence. But then wider than that, I think it's very hard because I don't think we can just keep in isolation. When I think of like what we need to do to the NHS, stop all of the privatization like ASAP, um, you know, when I think of like renationalizing, we've got a like energy crisis at the moment. We need to be renationalizing our utilities, making sure that, you know, they work for, for people, not profits of shareholders. There's so much we can do. One is very hard, but yeah, it would be minimum wage, I think. Minimum wage, 15 pounds? 15 pounds an hour. Sarah, thank you so much for thank joining you for us. You can me. now enjoy your I chips I can now have peace. some. Yeah, right, get no. some sauces for it yeah, as no, well. I'm getting in there. <laughs>